morning everybody. Um, what I'm going to be talking about is about doctorates and about some of the issues that I think are involved in what happens to people who do doctorates afterwards. And part of that is actually looking at the complexity of the doctorate itself, because it's not a single degree, it hasn't been for a long time in the UK. We probably have many more different types of PhD and doctorate than, than most other countries. But also I'm going to be looking a little bit at the complexity of academic work and how that is changing, because that also affects the environment in which people actually operate. I should also say that as well as being at Royal Holloway, I'm also chair of a charity called UK Council for Graduate Education, which if you haven't heard of that, that runs events for academics and administrators who are involved in postgraduate education. So I have a kind of wider perspective than just what happens in my own institution. So the question about the doctorate that lots and lots of people are asking worldwide is, okay, what's happening to the doctorate? Is it still fit for the 21st century? Is it something that we should consign to the dustbin? Should we change it? Uh, you know, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What's it meant to be about? And I think those discussions have been going on a long time because you can find stuff right now in the sort of 60s and 70s. But I guess there's a particular kind of set of concerns at the moment because a very, very low percentage of people who do it actually end up in academic jobs. There isn't just one type of doctorate. I think that's the thing that's very obvious in one sense, but also quite important. So, whether you're full-time or part-time makes quite a big difference to what your ideas are about what you want to do when you finish. Some people who are doing a part-time doctorate will already have a job. It may be that that will enhance their job prospects, but they may not actually want to be changing employer. They may not even want to change job. It makes a big difference what you're doing, what the discipline is, because that really, that affects the kind of range of things that you might be able to do. So, and also, because you can, it could be a conventional PhD, it could be a professional doctorate, it could be a doctorate with a substantial industrial component, and all of those things are going to affect both what people see as their future employment, but also the kind of preparation that's involved and what happens. The thesis itself, of course, is no longer as simply a monograph, uh, lots of universities now in the UK have an option which is sometimes called the alternative thesis format whereby you can actually publish it in the form of papers, either accepted papers or these in the form of papers. So it, it isn't even a single kind of phenomenon anymore. Um, now some people will make the argument that there are quite a lot of authors doing that, that the doctorate's out of date and problematic. The Times Higher seems to do that about every month. Uh, I think this week they've got something on whether all doctorates should be uh, should be um, members of staff as opposed to students, which of course in, in many European countries that's the case now. Um, you know, they, they had something I think a couple of years ago about you know whether the Bible was out of date and we should replace it with. I'm not quite sure what they were going to replace it with, but anyway, um, that was an interesting discussion. And obviously, the employment prospects are something that concerns everybody because. You don't want to feel that having spent quite a lot of years doing something, that at the end of it, people don't actually know what to do next. Um, and there's the whole question about what the so-called employment premium is for a doctor. And I don't think anyone really knows the answer. You will probably know if you are interested in all levels, that of course there's also an equally big debate about what the premium is for, for graduates. And that it has gone down massively at one time. I think it was 400,000. Then suddenly it shot down to a lot less than that. Because, of course, the more graduates you have, the lower the premium, plus the labour market's changing. And the other thing that I want to draw your attention to, because I think it's relevant to this, and you may not necessarily agree, 
But that is the mental health issue about postgraduate students. It isn't just an issue for postgraduate students, but there's a lot of evidence that many, many doctoral students are actually experiencing quite poor mental health and don't always get the support that they need for that. And I don't think that's just about thinking about employment. I think it's because there's a lot of pressure, particularly if you're not in a science discipline, you may find that you're spending a lot of time on your own. You don't necessarily have that much contact with other people. Uh, so it can get to feel that you are, you know, you're the only person doing this, even though that's not the case. So that's just something we probably need to be aware of. Now, it's interesting, this is another example of how the Times Higher, I think, winds people up around this. I do think it's a really important issue. Uh, and Ellie Bothwell wrote something in the Times Higher quite recently. I was actually interviewed by her before she wrote that article. And I think she used one sentence that I quote her about. Because what she wanted to say was it's a big problem and nobody's doing anything. And what I was saying is people are doing things, of course they can do more, but her message she wanted to get across was nobody's doing anything which of course wasn't what the interview was about. Now, I know that journalists do sometimes twist what we say, but that did strike me as quite problematic. Um, but anyway, what, what she highlighted was quite interesting, because if you, if you read it online, it takes you a while to realise what has actually happened. Is she found an article which is about Belgium. Now, Belgium is quite a small higher education system. It also has two different languages, French and Flemish, so it's quite a complex system. Uh, which showed that quite a high percentage of, of PhD students in that system have mental health problems. Well, actually, there's quite a high percentage of the population in, in, in all European countries have poor mental health. So that's not so surprising. But then she, it was written as though this applied to the UK. And of course, it's a different context. And so I think it's a really important thing. I think that we've got to think much more about how supervisors, supervisors can't be expected to deal with it, but supervisors need to know what the symptoms are and how to help people and who to refer them to. And I think sometimes, and certainly I'm sure, you know, some institutions are much better at this than others, but sometimes supervisors don't really know what to do. They're worried, but they don't know who to, or they, or they say, you know, go and see somebody in council. The student says, I don't want to go and see anybody in the institution. I want, you know, I don't want people to know, which is understandable. Um, and of course, research students might have a lot less access to campus facilities than the average undergraduate. Because I'm sure that many of you have noticed that outside of term time or semester, that there aren't so many facilities open to students. But of course, research students, if they're full-time, are around all the time. And obviously, part-time ones are going to be coming in over the summer and Easter and Christmas and so on. So that, I think that's part of the problem. Um, and I, did, I think the Belgian study is interesting, but I don't think you can use that to extrapolate and say it's exactly the same in, in the UK system. But I put a lot of emphasis on it because I think if if students are suffering anxiety, depression, panic attacks about their doctorate, then they're not going to be in a good state to actually think about employment. And that's something we need to bear in mind. That that's something we have to tackle alongside. And I don't see much discussion of that in the discussion about employability. So the doctoral degree is changing fast, um, inevitably, because people are kind of thinking about what it's supposed to be about, and because more and more people want to do it, although there's some evidence that the numbers are plateauing. Um, and the discussion is obviously about everything, from funding, to who applies, to how we supervise, you know, is, is the old-fashioned notion of one-to-one any longer the way that things happen? Should we be talking about group supervision? <coughs> what does that imply? Uh, how do you manage when you've got several supervisors? Do they all contradict each other? 
mean, I remember one of my students, my lines at Bristol, saying to me that she liked both of their supervisors, but not at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> she said, you just talk and you don't need any room for me, which is a good lesson. But I'm sure that happens quite a lot. Maybe you've got five supervisors, which sounds too sad. Then that's even more complex, especially when some of them are an outside organisation, and it's not so easy to arrange for them to have a supervision. So those, those things are important. Also, you know, how do you actually teach? Because a lot of people don't think of supervision as teaching, but it is in a way teaching. But it's, it, people don't necessarily subject it to the same kind of analysis and concern as they might if they're teaching, say, a group of undergraduates. Um, but it's also things like, you know, who do, who do students who are doing doctorates think they are? What, what are they in transition from and to? Um, what's going to happen in terms of things like internships? Internships are a great idea. Um, it's not always easy to get them, and it's not always easy to get them paid, and that's an issue, because if you're going on one that's several months, then you probably have to suspend your, if you're full-time, you have to suspend the registration, and then if you don't get your money, then you've got to get through that gap. So they're a great idea, but it, it's kind of making sure all the kind of practicalities are in place, and that it isn't just available to people who can afford to fund themselves through that bit. There's a big debate about interdisciplinarity, so some people say, well, everything's interdisciplinary now. I'm not quite sure that is where we are. Uh, but obviously, if you're doing an interdisciplinary degree, it's great in terms of pushing back boundaries. It may be much more demanding, however, in terms of finding other people who understand what you're doing. And also finding examiners at the end who, who will understand what you're doing, because that's also important. And of course, traditionally, the doctorate, or at least the full-time version, was seen as a preparation for academic work. But obviously, now, that, that's... You know, that's a very small proportion of people who do the doctorate. And of course it contributes to this, you know, the knowledge economy. But what does that actually mean? When you open that up, it, it's a kind of, it's quite a complicated set of things that we find. And I think also, my other point is that doctoral education reflects many of the wider changes that are happening to higher education systems across the world. Uh, and in a way, of course, what happens to the doctorate is intimately bound up with what happens to universities. Uh, so that, that is actually quite a big factor. So, you can do a doctorate in just about any discipline, and what you do and how you do it. The performance PhD is completely different to a chemistry PhD. A professional doctorate in social science is completely different to a professional doctorate in business, for example. So, might be some overlap, but very, very different contexts. So, it isn't something that we can make very simplistic statements about. And that, I think, is part of the problem in terms of the, the way that the Times Higher and other popular media see it, is that they see it in very simplistic terms, and they don't necessarily want to be told that it's complicated. Of course, we always do that as academics, don't we? So it's much more complicated than that. And you can hear the journalists sighing on the end of the phone, you know, in the room, because that's not what they want to hear. If we look at what's happening to doctoral students worldwide, then, I mean, you know, there are some interesting trends. Um, and there are some, you know, there are a lot of doctoral students around. Uh, and the gender balance is, is changing a bit, but it's not changed significantly in the sciences, apart from possibly biological science. Uh, there are countries where there are many more women in those fields than others. Um, but the largest share of doctoral degrees is still in science and engineering. And what's interesting, I think, is that very often when people talk about full-time doctorates, what they have a notion of in their heads is a white male who's young, who's doing the doctorate. Now, of course, to some extent that's accurate, 
But of course, that is nothing like the totality of students. And if you look at part-time students, who are mostly in the social sciences and arts and humanities, they, they make up all kinds of different backgrounds. Uh, and what they actually started off with in terms of their original education in, in universities is probably quite different to what they're doing now. So there are a lot more people around doing doctorates. Um, the USA, as you might expect, is still the largest single contributor, but that's because it's such a huge system, uh, followed by Germany, the UK, and France. I suspect the UK is not going to stay in that position because of Brexit, because if we're going to make it more difficult, yeah, we're going to charge £1,000 a year for people who actually come from other countries to work. I wonder how many more thousands of pounds we're going to have to charge them in order for them to the students. Uh, because a lot of the discussion at the moment about reducing net migration is quite frightening for anybody who's involved with universities. Um, so there's a kind of, you know, there's a lot of people out there, and, and obviously there's a lot of knowledge as well about what happens to those people, but those two things don't always link. So how do organisational changes to universities affect the doctrine? I think first of all, and Christine Muslin, who's a French academic who's written a lot about academic labour markets, one of the things that she says is that in a way academic work is becoming much less special. That always there was the argument in the past that academic work was different to other professions. You know, more autonomy, the mix of things that you did, you, you were able to do some of that very flexibly. But that is, is less and less the case now. And that, of course, doesn't just apply to ordinary teaching and, and to your research, and so it also applies to supervision. And I think that's not an unimportant point. Also, there's an enormous emphasis now on submission and completion rates. Now, that wasn't always there in the past. If you go back to the kind of 1980s, then in the UK, actually quite a low proportion of full-time students even submitted anywhere near on time, uh, even less completed on time, because obviously completion takes much longer and it's subject to all sorts of forces we can't control, like when people are available to read the revised thesis and so on. Uh, when committees meet to approve things and so on. So that, that is something that wasn't there before. But it's interesting that that's the focus. It does. So it's almost like the pressure is to, and I think it is important for people to submit on time. I don't think that's about bureaucracy. I think it's that longer you do something, especially if you weren't planning to put it over a long period of time, obviously a part-time student will put that into the plan that they had. But if you weren't doing that and you're a full-time student, you take a long time to finish. I don't think it actually helps that. When, when I was a doctoral student a long, long time ago at Leicester, but this was really in the dark ages, but there were people in that department who were teaching who had spent 20 years and they had not finished their PhD. And I think those people were never really able to research properly because they always had hanging over them the fact that they hadn't finished it. So I don't think it's a good thing that people don't submit. But if, if the pressure is to submit come what may, I know we've certainly had sometimes discussions with external examiners who said, actually, this thesis isn't really finished. And in fact, we've put a new regulation in place that said if the examiners think that the thesis is still in no form or isn't unfinished, they can actually treat that as a first submission. The student gets time to resubmit it, but they don't get the full range of options at the other end because we want to discourage that. Because it's not helpful to anybody if a thesis is written in no form, or even we had one example where I think a student sent in an extra chapter a month after the thesis went to the examiner. So, oh, could you just look at this extra chapter? Well, obviously the answer was no. Uh, this isn't some kind of incremental process where you kind of gradually add extra chapters. I'm sure those things happen in every institution, but of course it's not particularly helpful. 
There's also, as many of you will know and people are talking about it today, a lot of emphasis on things like collaboration across institutions and also trying to internationalise, although that's going to be under a lot of pressure in the future of the UK because we neither want people to come here, or seemingly they're not going to want us to go there either. Destinations of doctoral holders are now examined almost with the same kind of concern as, as destinations of undergraduates, although we don't yet have the same kind of details. Uh, and of course, people look at the cost-benefit analysis of doctoral degrees. Um, UK Council for Graduate Education had a residential for people who were administrators or academics running doctoral schools and graduate schools recently. And Mark Smith, who's BC in Lancaster, came and talked about the financial aspects of it. And some people said, well, it's depressing, because he said it doesn't make money, but we've got to keep doing it. And I said, but that, that is the problem, that it doesn't bring in much money. It probably doesn't bring in any, but if we stop doing it, then it has all kinds of consequences. It, for example, if you're in a STEM discipline, who, who provides the labour in the lab? If you're not, if you're in an arts or social science, then who, who are the people that are coming through with bright ideas? You don't have them. So you have to do it, but it doesn't make money. And that's hard, I think, for institutions to get their head. They want more students, but they don't necessarily think about how those students are going to be paid for. And there are also changes to academic work, which I think make a difference too. So there's the whole casualisation and precarity, precarity debate, which is basically saying most people who end up new to academic work are in temporary jobs or something. Of course, that was often the case in the sciences because the postdocs, as you move on from a PhD to a postdoc, but now people are getting their third or even their fourth postdoc. The period that they spend hoping to be academic is, is considerably elongated. It doesn't necessarily make it easier for you to get a permanent job. It might make it more difficult because then you're competing with people who are new to the field and that they may be preferred. Uh, but it also means that, in a sense, the notion of what academic work is has changed. I know when, when, you, when I go to conferences abroad and I talk about the percentage of academics that are in temporary jobs in the UK, people are often very shocked that it's over 50% because clearly there are some systems where that's not the case. It definitely is the case, for example, in Australia, and that's probably where most of the work's been done. There's also been quite a lot of work done on it in Ireland. But that, that obviously has an effect on what people think is possible, and also what the real opportunities are. But there are other changes as well. So there's a lot of emphasis on, I've already talked about interdisciplinarity, but there's emphasis on collectivisation, so research centres, doctoral schools, all of those things. Yes, we've had them before, but those things come and go, but they're quite popular at the moment. There's much more specialisation in academic careers, so people are either doing teaching only, or they're doing a mix, or they're doing research only, but those, those routes are now marked out, often in promotion criteria, in a way that they weren't in the past. I've talked about nursing, so I won't go back to that again. There's also the fact that lots of academics are kind of able to be anywhere in the world in one sense because they can be online with people from any country in the world. But it also means that that puts a lot of pressure. If people are traveling a lot and also don't come in very often because they can do everything virtually, there's a lot of pressure on administrators. And it also means that students may not always be able to see their supervisor. Yes, you may be able to have a Skype. People even have Skype videos now, but it's not always the same thing. It's fine, but it's not always a replacement for actually having a face-to-face -face supervision. And, and as Nujoki's talked about the speed up of academic work leading to you know, quite varied responses to how people separate or join together their work and non-work life. 
All of those things are affecting the people who do this supervision. Now you may say, oh, but that's not relevant. But it seems to me it is. If we don't understand what's happening to academic jobs, then it's quite hard to understand why supervisors might be struggling with what they're doing. Because the overall workload is increasing massively, but they aren't being able, they aren't getting any more resource to actually deal with those things. And they're under significant pressure in terms of indicators like submission and completion. So casualization means that, of course, a lot of people who do end up with an academic role are going to end up with lots of part-time jobs, or they're going to end up with one or one or two-year contracts. They don't know what's going to happen next. Collectivization means a lot more doctoral education is collaborative across institutions. That's good, but it also has its weaknesses. And indeed, it's quite clear that the research councils that have been very keen to move to that in the UK haven't really got that much firm evidence of whether it works or not. So, for example, the, the evaluation of the ESRC first round of collaborative doctoral training centres said we still don't really know if this works or not. So it's untested, that model. I mean, it's, it's beginning to be tested, but we haven't really got the long-term evidence. Specialisation, of course, because you know, doctoral education becomes a field in itself, and there's a massive growth of doctoral schools and colleges. There's the kind of mobility of academics, and of course that means that you may get much less face-to-face -face contact. And the speed up means that of course you can have more doctoral students. They can send you their work very fast. Sometimes people send you something, you know, they send you three chapters at midnight, and at nine o'clock the next one says, but you haven't read them all. <laughs> no, actually I don't read very fast in my sleep, but <laughs> I think there is a real problem in that, in the sense that because people can do things faster, the assumption is that if you get it faster, you have to deal with it. And I think that's, that's something that's causing problems for everybody. Um, and of course, discussing the employment prospects of doctoral students may not be top of your list, particularly if you also have large numbers of graduate students, but you also urge to think about employability. So we could argue that the doctoral degree is no longer a good preparation for an academic career. So Cuthbert, Moller, writing about Australia, talk about the doctoral crisis. You can, but you can find that phrase of doctoral crisis going back several decades in the literature when it starts to be around. So it's not a new concept at all. Um, but of course, is it really a preparation for academic research? Because it's about research, it's not about teaching. Of course, a lot of PhD students do some teaching, but often that, that is a very small amount. They don't always get a teaching qualification. They don't always get the support they should get. I mean, they obviously ought to, but things happen. Um, so it's not necessarily even that good a preparation for academic work for that tiny percentage you do it. And of course, the nature of the doctorate is particularly the standard doctorate, and it applies much less to industrial doctorates and professional doctorates, is it's quite narrow, which is fine because people need to specialise, but then when they actually come to talk to employers, we, we find this even in, even in academic interviews, is that people just talk about what they've done. But of course, the interview panel's are not just interested in that. You're not just going to be teaching that tiny little thing that you you talked about people doctorate. So I think that is also something that needs to be looked at. And of course there's the you know there's now the debate about should it be a monograph, is this a good thing, you know, is it a good thing to have papers because some people hate one format, some people hate both of them. That's quite a complicated debate to untangle, particularly in institutions which need regulations on these things. Now of course, you know, there's not since since the Roberts report um, in 2002, there's been a lot of emphasis in the UK on research and development about generic skills. 
that's really important, but a lot of students are still very resistant to doing that. Uh, and will say, I can't see the point of this, I haven't got time, I'll come back to it later, and of course later is too late often. Um, yes, internships and work placements are going up, but it's, you know, that they do put pressure on submission tickets, and a lot of careers departments in the universities don't really see themselves as actually focusing on, on doctoral students. They're much more interested in what happens when graduates and master's students. I think that's a problem, but I think it comes partly it's about resource. Um, and of course, the professional doctorate itself is linked to work. You know, most of those people are in work, they actually use what they're doing in their work to inform the basis of the thesis. Uh, some people think that that's the, the way of the future, so, you know, I think there was a recent discussion where the Vice Chancellor of Middlesex University said, you know, all, all degrees and event, all doctoral degrees eventually will be professional doctors. I don't think that's very likely, because if you look at the report that was done by Robin Mellis, Ball, and others for Hefty recently, it suggests that actually it's really hard to get employers to pay for professional doctors. So it's not clear that that is necessarily true, but, you know, that's a point of view. So, academic careers are changing as well. Now, let, let's just kind of come to employability itself. And what is it? Okay, so it's a concept that got developed mostly in relation to undergraduates in, in the context of all sorts of changes to higher education, neoliberalism, new managerialism, massification of the intake. But there's actually not that much critique of it, which I find interesting. So, academics are using this concept, but they're not always critiquing it. And of course, governments love the concept of employability because they can blame someone. So if you don't have to take blame, you know, because we're in the middle of an election, this is a big issue at the moment, who is responsible for what is a really interesting and sometimes very worrying phenomenon that you get in elections in particular, but are there all the time. So if you can say, oh, it's university's fault that students don't get jobs, then you've actually taken the, the spotlight off anything else at all and say, oh, it's all university sports, and they need to sort it out. Now, of course, they have a responsibility to do that, but it's not that straightforward, I don't think. Firstly, I think a lot of debates about employability don't think about the identity of the person who's supposed to be employable. They don't think about what do they make of it. They don't really explore the kind of conditions under which people are. You know, we have a lot of so-called full-time students, and this doesn't just apply to doctoral students, it applies to undergraduates as well, who actually are probably working many, many more hours than they're supposed to, and actually effectively are part-time, although they're presenting themselves full-time. I've had that to doctoral students as well, when they run out of money, particularly those people who are struggling with, perhaps they've got a fee waiver and they've got a very small stipend. Many of those have, people have to work. They are technically full-time, but often they're really part-time. So that's a problem. But also I think there's, there's a kind of sense in which what, what is being emphasised with employability is to some extent that you know, the state is stepping in and saying, you know, we're going to interfere in the relationship between universities and the labour market, you know, and we're going to privilege employers because you know, that's an important part of it. It seems to be both parts of it. But also, there's, there's a kind of sense in which if you don't get a job, you're seen as a failure, and it's your fault. So there's, there's a lot of kind of attribution, attribution of blame, it seems to me, bound up with that concept. 
And I think it is quite a problematic discourse in some ways. I mean, I know we've had this discussion in my institution with departments like music and drama who said, well, we hate the term employment because many of our graduates are not going to be in any sense employed in an organisation with some kind of full-time job. They're going to have all kinds of careers, some of which is self-employment, some of which might be employing other people, you know, some of it might be working for an employer. So we're happy if people talk about skills for employment, but we're not happy with employability because it implies that the only thing we want is for people to fit into a standard job in an organisation. And I think it's interesting how the whole debate has completely focused on on higher education. So employers apparently have very little to do with it, it's not really their fault, but of course there's a very long history. You can go back to the 18th and 19th century and find employers complaining about the quality of, in those days we're largely talking about people coming out of school, but it's the same debate. So it's not, that isn't in any sense new. And of course there are issues there that need to be resolved, but it's a continuing saga in that story, and I don't think that's going to change. So I think this whole question about what you actually do about employability and what it means and what it implies is, is quite complicated. And I think Timmer's work is actually with undergraduates, but I think it's relevant because what he suggests is that many undergraduate students are completely disengaged from this debate. They're not really interested in what they do until they get to, you know, just about finishing their final exams. Of course, that might be a bad thing, but his argument is the more you try and force them, that the more they resisted. Now I don't think that doctor students are quite in that situation, but I think, and certainly when, when you kind of go and talk to doctor students in different contexts of different institutions, many of them still believe that they're going to be academic, even though the evidence is against that. And so it's clear that they are also disengaged, probably in a very different way from undergraduates, because of course they're older and more mature, they've got more experience of education, but still they're somehow not really engaging in that broader debate. And so the question is, you know, so artists are all talking about, you know, there's a moral duty to have a focus on employability by higher education providers. But it seems to me, of course, it is important that we discuss what happens to people when they finish a doctorate. But do we also forget about those broader things that we're trying to inculcate? You know, what about citizenship? There are very few generic skills courses on citizenship that I've seen in anybody's university program. It seems to me that's also important. That may not be as important, but those things nevertheless matter. And there's a danger that we forget that. So, do all doctoral students need to think about employment skills? Well, obviously part-time students are often already in full-time employment. And as I say, they may be hoping to get promotion, but they probably know how that works anyway, if they're staying in the same line of work. If they want to move, they often have a clear idea of it. They, you know, they may have some kind of need to talk to people about it, but they have a lot of work experience already. But obviously others don't have that. Some may be going into the gig economy, some have a mix of different jobs. So it's really employment and entrepreneurial skills rather than employability per se, which need emphasising, it seems to me. And I worry that that isn't always what gets across. And our employment skills the same for doctoral students as they are for undergraduates. We had this argument in our research degrees committee last week. Um, and some people said it was exactly the same, and other people said well, it's not exactly the same because they're coming in with different things, they're actually, they have a different experience, they have much more specialised skills. So some of the things might be generic, but actually the notion that you can descend 
doctoral students along to events that are designed for undergraduates really doesn't work because they're completely different in terms of their understanding of what they do and they're completely different in terms of what they've actually done. And who should teach these employment skills? That's a huge issue. You know, because a lot of supervisors will say quite rightly, well, we don't really have that expertise. Obviously, some do. Some are involved in startup businesses and all kinds of entrepreneurial enterprising things, but not all of them are. But careers don't always want to know either. And I think that's one of the things that's engaging careers advice in universities in the fact that they do have a responsibility towards doctors. And some clearly do recognise that, but others are saying, well, they're really busy, we don't really have time to do that. It's not in the details, so we're not that interested. And I think that's a problem. And then how do we actually get students to engage in employment skills? Because I think that is equally as hard with doctoral students as it is with undergraduates. So if supervisors are actually honest with doctoral candidates about employment prospects, what effect would that have on doctoral recruitment and on the programme viability? Now, I, I had a discussion recently with somebody in one of our humanities departments who said, well, we, we, we get set all these targets, not by me, I hasten to say, but by somebody, clearly in the institution, for how many doctoral students we need to have. But many of them don't get academic jobs. There aren't very many academic jobs. What should we do? I said, well, we could just get rid of it altogether, because that's a possibility, if that's what you want to do. But then you've also got to think about the consequences of that, both in terms of how you're seen as, as a research active department, but also what happens to kind of future generations. Uh, in terms of the fields that we're working in. But of course it is true that very few countries outside Sub-Saharan Africa have a shortage of academics in, in most areas. There are a few areas where there's that, that kind of shortage, but there are not many. And clearly, if, if the whole PhD is based around the need to recruit academic labour, then you, you know, PhDs, PhD programs will very rapidly disappear. And of course that has all sorts of other consequences. But clearly there is demand for PhDs from large organisations because they have more experience of it. The challenge is small and medium enterprise because they are much harder to reach because obviously they're, they're tiny. So you can reach it in, in a particular, you know, if you're in a big city, it's much easier to reach those people than if you're in, in a kind of more rural area. But also many of those will have no experience of taking people to a doctor and may be quite nervous about doing so. They may feel it's going to show them up. We know that, for example, in fields like social work, for a long time there was an absolute terror of anybody who was a social worker and wanted to become who had, who had a doctor because this seemed to be problematic. It was in teaching as well, in school teaching. So, and I don't think those things have completely disappeared. Of course, the desire of PhD students to become an academic does vary quite a lot by country, it varies a lot by discipline. But somebody said, well, you just tell them what the statistics are. But my feeling is that that doesn't really work. Because people think it won't apply to them. You can tell them, that, you know, until you're blue in the face that the, the number of, and percentage of doctoral students who get academic jobs permanently is very, very small. But they always assume that they're different. So <coughs> just come to someone and say, oh, you just give them statistics. I don't think that works. Um, and I think this is coming back to the mental health thing. I think it's really important that people particularly are looking out for the signs of poor mental health. In, in that final year of, of people studying, when they're actually thinking about it, because that's when it's most likely. And also, they're anxious about the viva, they're anxious about what they're going to do next, they're anxious about money, they're anxious about things like council tax and so on, which they need to pay as soon as they're finished. There are all sorts of things that people are concerned about. They're not new necessarily, but there is much more pressure. I mean, I think you know, there are lots of things that can be and are being done, you know, so I think that 
many departments of supermarkets could depict academic work much more kind of realistically, because I think people, on the one hand, are constantly moaning about their own jobs, because academics always moan about what they do. But at the same time, when you present it to students, you present it as though it's not like that in many cases. So on one hand, you think it's got all sorts of problems attached to it. On the other hand, you don't present it like that to your students. But also, I think that it's being honest with students about whether they have any chance of an academic Because however bright they might be, however good their thesis is, there are certain things that they're going to need. And if they haven't got any outputs, if they haven't got a teaching qualification when they finish, the chances of getting a permanent job are pretty low. And I think that it's certainly the case that some universities could organise a lot more opportunities for doctors to explore what other people who've left have done, explore other careers. There are lots of, if you want to stay in academia, there are lots of hybrid roles that are part academic, part administrative, which you know can provide very, very fulfilling careers for people. I mean, some, some alumni departments do run lots of events with all the students who are not in academic jobs, and that's very successful. You can obviously do that in a collaborative partnership much better because you can draw a larger number of people. And I think universities need, and many of them have these already, but developing things with SMEs as well as a large organisation, because otherwise you don't have this full, full spectrum. But I think that the point is that you do need to look at the kind of doctorate that people are doing. And clearly what people need in a professional doctorate is completely different to what they would need on, on a PhD. And I think that, that differentiation doesn't always come across. So I suppose just to conclude, I mean, I think this whole question of the relationship between employment and doctors is enormously complicated. But I think that it's not realistic for universities to see themselves as responsible for labour markets. Universities can't control the labour market. Politicians can't control the labour market. Never mind universities. So, you know, there are things we can do. There are more things that we can do than we're doing. But at the end of it, you know, you cannot actually control those kinds. All you can do is to kind of help some people to get ahead of the queue, and realistically, that's what you're doing. You're not increasing the chances more broadly, you're just pushing people up the queue so that maybe they may have a better chance than somebody else. I think it is time we have a proper debate about the doctorate, because I think there's lots of literature out there, but many people don't even know that literature exists, which is fair enough if that's not the kind of thing that you're interested in, you're just interested in getting on with your day-to-day -day supervision. Um, but actually thinking about, you know, where is the doctorate going? You know, maybe one day robots will write them. I mean, it's already argued that robots can gather a lot of data. I'm sure you've seen all the debates about data analytics and what you can get out of Facebook and what you can get out of people's voting preferences and so on. So there's no reason why one day you couldn't just send someone off and they come back with a thesis the next day. It might not be a very good thesis, but at least it will be a thesis. The relationship between the doctorate and academia needs rethinking, I think. That careers advice shouldn't be patronising towards doctor candidates because I think some people treat them as though they are just overgrown with the graduates, and I don't think that's a very helpful stance. And nor should anyone assume that they're going to spend the whole lifetime in one field. And also, I think a lot of doctoral candidates, although they're aware that things like gender and ethnicity affect employment graduates, don't think that's going to apply to them. And careers officers are very bad about telling it. People, oh, they mustn't tell them to put them off, but at least they're prepared for them. They know that that might happen and they're alert. If you don't even know that that's going to happen, and all the evidence is it will, um, then actually that's more difficult for you to deal with it. And I think really, I would just finally say that, you know, doctoral education is not just about employment. Generic skills are fine, but, you know, what happens to citizenship? 
And that's really, really important. And we mustn't forget that in our concern about how it goes. Thank you.